the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, what is the question that dictates how Christians should approach culture and politics? We're going to discuss that with David French, senior editor at The Dispatch and columnist for Time magazine. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on a Tuesday afternoon. It is broiling out there in the Chicago like area. The oven hot outside today. Like, did we jump from like late winter to midsummer? I feel like that's what we just did. I today. mean, this time last week, it was snowing. So <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take the heat over the snow. But I mean, let's just let's just it's odd. We live in an odd place in the e- world. Every year we make jokes about how like <laughs> spring is two weeks long. And then so that silly. year spring is two weeks long. It's and true. It goes, it's so. true. Uh, yeah, a crazy day here, but we are glad to be spending some time with you. Hopefully you're in your car in the air conditioning today, mm-hmm. and uh, we are glad to be together. All right, Aubrey, you have, are the self-proclaimed non-sports person of the right, show. So, right, So we're going to start with sports. I feel a little sports. ashamed of, oh, we're starting with sports. Great, great. So we are going to start with sports. There's a I'm little... going to put on a learning posture right now. <laughs> learning I'm posture. here to learn. There is a little thing this weekend called the NFL draft or this week, which is Thursday, called the NFL draft. Basically, your your teams, all the teams, they get to pick players from college and it's in order of how bad your team was last year. And so I fully expect your husband is going to be Facebooking and tweeting about the Bears selection at the draft. Definitely. He will be. Yes. Yep. And so. Myself, I'm a, I'm a big New York Giants fan, so we'll be okay. watching with bated breath. So I love watching the draft. It's really, you got to kind of be a hardcore sports fan to enjoy watching the NFL draft. And so uh, why do I bring this up? Well, the third team in the draft this year via a trade is the San Francisco 49ers. And the San Francisco 49ers, they have a quarterback. His name is Jimmy Garoppolo. I promise we're getting to a point here that you're going to be able to jump in. <laughs> They have a quarterback named Jimmy Garoppolo, who's pretty Old good. Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy. Yes, yes, Jimmy from Southern Illinois, I believe. Hey. And, uh, and, uh, but they've traded up and they have made a, it, uh, completely transparent that they're going to pick a new quarterback in the draft with the third oh. pick in the draft. Oh, no. And so we're going to, we're going to spiritualize this. I want you to hear what their coach said. When he was asked, does that mean that Jimmy is going to be on our roster, on the 49ers roster, come Sunday, come when the draft is over? The coach's name is Kyle Shanahan. Listen to what he said in answer to that question. Um, I can't guarantee that anybody in the world will be alive Sunday, so I can't guarantee who will be on our roster on Sunday. Um, So that goes for all of us. All right, so Aubrey, clearly this guy, the coach, was just was just uh, avoiding the question. I mean, yeah, that's the master of the dodge, the art of the dodge, right? That there. was the art of the dodge. <laughs> but here, we're pastors. We're yep. going to spiritualize this that's question. Right. Is what he gave us there just a, a fatalistic view of life that is mm. unhelpful? Or was he kind of mimicking Paul's call 
to have a bit of an eternal perspective or the book of James that life is but a mist and right. it could be over at any time. Right. Is what he said, obviously a dodge of a question, helpful or an unhelpful posture to take towards life? Oh, man, this is always a, a great question. Do we focus on our sort of limitedness, right? Or and or do we focus on an eternal perspective? That's right. Are we focused on our earthly time or are we focused on our time in the new creation with Jesus? And I, I feel like most things both matter, right? It matters that we're about the Father's business, bringing God's king or helping usher in God's kingdom on earth. Right. Jesus brought the kingdom, but, um, and that we are mindful that our time is short. And so with the time that God has allotted to each of us, we want to live fully for his glory and um, his namesake more than we want to live for our own. But I do think um, we don't want to get fatalistic, right? Like, oh, there's right. no point and there's no point in thinking about Sunday because you know, we may not live till Sunday. <laughs> I think we, we can have hope in that, right? Like, hey, we yep. might not live till Sunday, but we know where we're going because our faith is in Jesus Christ. And we know we're going to see our loved ones and we know we're going to see God make all things new. And um, it is an interesting answer, though. I feel like this is a good sermon illustration. Okay, so what do you think, Brian? Yeah, a skillful dodge by an NFL, quarter, uh, NFL I mean, coach right there. <laughs> Because that's all that was. <laughs> it was uh, really skillful. It, it, and interestingly, their their star tight end Greg Kittle tweeted at his coach said, "I'll call you on Sunday and let you know if I'm still with us." <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's the, the the important text that that a lot of us uh, often go to in conversations like this is out of the book of Philippians when Paul is facing death. Right, he is chained mm-hmm. to a Roman prison. Mm-hmm. Most scholars believe so. He's legitimately facing possible execution. Uh, and Paul says very famously, uh, I don't know whether it's better for me to be here or to be there. Yeah. And he says, then for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Yeah. And uh, a outside of that being one of the top five most tattooed verses uh, for Christians. Right. <laughs> we all know that young guy who has for me to live is Christ to die is gain on his forearm. Yeah. Uh, but besides that, I think that's the posture that is so difficult, but so important for me. While I'm alive on this earth, whether it's a day or it's 50 more years, uh, my focus is to live for Jesus. What That's he right. has called me to do, I'm going to be about his business yeah. and take that perspective. And then the perspective continues. And to die as the Christ follower is actual gain, right? Amen. Like it's yeah. there is gain to that, but it's not a gain in the sense of like, so therefore, I'm not going to invest in this world anymore. It's yeah. the old C.S. Lewis quote, right? Like the people who are the most heavenly minded do the most earthly good. Right. And, and I think uh, here's the, uh, I'm going to use the phrase for you again, the $64,000 question. Uh, <laughs> here's the question, right? Like, how do we grow in that perspective, mm. though? And uh, we've all preached the sermon, but I'm not sure I have a good answer. How would you answer? How do we grow in that kind of Pauline perspective of for me to live as Christ to die as gain? But that to me feels like a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and probably maturity. Like I, I would mm. say that the, the prime timers and the, the older generation of faithful Christians have a better perspective on this than we do. 
for younger people, it's so hard, I think, to think beyond this present life. But as I mean, I, you know, I, I think about my own grandmother before she passed away, how she just longed for heaven, mm. longed to meet her savior, longed to be, you know, ideally reunited with people that she had loved and lost and simultaneously was sad to leave. So it was like this, this both and thing that I think comes with maturity, I think comes with a growing passion for Jesus. Like mm. once our, once our love for Jesus and our desire for him is greater than our love for the things of this world, then I feel like this call to live as Christ and understanding that even death is gain, like you get it when Jesus is bigger, right? That's than right. he is now. That's right. That's really well put. I think I wanted to start there, A, because I found his quote kind of funny. Uh, but B, <laughs> it, it, it is a big deal for us as Christians. Like, yeah. how do we live in the already not yet as we often yes, talk about it? That's right. Uh, because that in many ways is the key to life as we follow Jesus and kind of live, as we said, in that already not yet. Well, coming up next, we are thrilled to be joined by author, uh, political commentator, David French. Uh, he's senior editor at The Dispatch. He also writes at the French Press. Uh, we're going to talk about how do you navigate culture and politics as Christians. Excited to have that conversation with David French next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, and we are thrilled that you are choosing to join us on this steamy Tuesday afternoon in the Chicagoland area. Uh, but we are real excited to be joined by a friend of the show, someone who's been on multiple times. He is the senior editor at Dispatch. Uh, he also blogs at the French Press, author of many books. We're thrilled to be joined by David French. David, how are you? Thanks for doing this again with us today. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me back. Yeah, well, anytime. It is a real pleasure to have you on. And hey, we have so many things we want to talk to you about. And uh, that's what I appreciate about, about you. You let us just kind of fly to all fields. You <laughs> uh, you wrote a blog post uh, back on April 18th. So now it's a couple of weeks old, but it's something we really wrestled with on the show where you ask this question. Does the primary threat to the church come from within or without. And it's a long blog post, a really good one for people to read. But uh, I would love to know why did you feel like that's a really important question? And how do you go about answering that question? How did you kind of conclude the answer to that question? Yeah. So the reason why I wrote is I think that people are getting the answer wrong and it's really distorting our response to the world hmm. and how we interact with and perceive the world. And so the short answer is I, I try to make the argument um, scripturally and with contemporaneous news events that the primary threat right now to the church in light of really rapidly declining church attendance and church membership in the United States is that it comes from within. Hmm. It comes from our own sin. It comes from our own flaws and not from without sort of the hostile ideologies of the world. And now I did not say is the only threat from within or the only threat from without. Right. Lots of people right. sort of did this as an either or rather than a primary or secondary. I do right. think that the ideologies of the world and unjust laws and all of those things can really have an effect on people. However, what I was talking about was primary. And and the reason why I said that is, you know, from a scriptural and, and a biblical perspective, if you look at what the call is on God's people um, and and the call on individuals, it's, you know, time and time again, if you go back to the children of Israel in, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament, there was a real emphasis on the children of Israel 
not building giant amounts of military strength to confront a hostile surrounding world, but on following the Lord mm. <laughs> and looking to the Lord for salvation. And, yeah. you know, there's that just really a famous moment when Hezekiah is confronting the Assyrian empire and, and there's, you know, this prophet Isaiah who's saying, you know, don't look to chariots, don't go down yeah. to Egypt, look to the Lord. And which, you know, sort of to our secular ears seems to really weird. I mean, here's an army outside the walls of your city. Shouldn't you go find another army? Mm, <laughs> and, right, right. And the message was, no, you you look to God to protect his people. And, and Jesus said, you know, nothing outside a person by going into him can defile him. But the mm. things that come out of a person are what defile him from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual yeah. immorality, yeah. theft, murder. And so this was basically saying, look, you know, um, as we look at the world, we often get in a hostile and defensive crouch because we think the world is threatening us yeah. and we don't walk the path of repentance. Um, and and I, I, I included this tweet from Sam Albury, my friend, who says, we repent our way into fruitfulness for God. We don't wow. assert, spend, strategize, excel, or impress our way there. Spiritually, we're never quicker than when we're on our knees. And I just thought that was a very powerful statement of what is the true, where is our true strength? And our true, true strength comes um, through our repentance and our obedience. That's so good, David. David, do you think that this is primarily an American sort of instinct, that culture war idea, or do you think this is just sin nature? Have you thought about that at all? Yeah, I thought about that a lot. And I, I, you know, I think, you know, we all have a sin nature and it's going to express itself in different cultures in different ways and in different political environments in different ways. And I think the thing that we wrestle with here in the United States that a lot of churches don't wrestle with as much in other countries is that there are so many evangelicals in the United States, self-described evangelicals. We won't right. go into all of the <laughs> parsing who is and who isn't really. Right. But, right. But who describe themselves as evangelicals, a huge number of people who have an enormous amount of power. And that's not true in places, you know, say France or Belgium or Great Britain. Yeah. Um, and so you have this enormous amount of power, but also at the same time, a sense that that immense power is slipping away. Mm. And so I think that that creates a particular kind of temptation that you don't have when you're not in a position where you feel like you can select the leader of the free world, for example. Right. right, um, right. Or that you can dominate one of the two great political parties in your country. And so that enormous amount of sort of objectively real political power carries with it its own temptation. And it carry. And also when you feel like that amount of power is slipping away it can create a real sense of panic. I, yeah, I wrote about this yeah. several months ago. I said, in the United States of America, evangelicals have begun to lose power, but we've gained more liberty mm. and we don't like that exchange. Mm. Man, uh, David, I want to take, uh, I want to ask you a little bit about the media. And uh, you tweeted about this last night that uh, I saw it and I was just so mad to see what Tucker Carlson said last <laughs> night. I don't want to play it, but he basically right. said, uh, he told his audience to harass people wearing masks outside. And if you see them having their kids wearing masks, you should call the police. Oh, uh, and you just yeah. wrote, this is gross. Yeah. Uh, and then you wrote, 
much more eloquently. I was just mad. I just wanted to yell at the TV when I saw it. <laughs> Can you help people? And there might be people out there going, no, that sounds right. Help people understand, A, why that's gross and why it's so dangerous to be not just believe it to be, but to be saying it on television. Yeah. So this is normally I really try to avoid this this practice on Twitter of quote tweeting the person who says something outrageous. I know. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> like, I do it. I do it. But I try to only do it when a person, the person who's saying something outrageous is has such a huge platform mm. that you feel like you've got to push back against it. And Tucker Carlson is the most watched person in cable news. So, you know, you feel like you've got to push back against this. And yeah. And, you know, the mask culture war in this country has just gotten out of control. And, yeah. and the way I put it in the tweet is that, look, regardless whether or not you agree with wearing a mask outside, and just to be clear, like, we've been very mask compliant inside. We live in Tennessee and and outside we've not worn a mask, yeah. um, but we've not had outdoor mask mandates in Tennessee. And if we had one, I'd comply with the law. Right. Um, but the... So I, what I've said is that if you call the police or Child Protective Services, you're engaging in an act that is designed almost from the get-go to separate a child and a parent. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, and and which is an extraordinary act. I mean, you're trying to put the state in that particular family mm. and then to urge viewers to do so just frivolously because you're mad about something in the culture war is – it's really despicable. It's it's really despicable. Now, hopefully, you know, one of the things I used to have a greater tolerance for sort of outraged hyperbole, believing that people could discern outraged hyperbole. But after January 6th, I've got a lot lower tolerance for outraged hyperbole. Yeah, because, right, right. Because right. some people hear it and believe it to their core and act on it. That's right. And, and it makes you think about, uh, you know, even that story going around yesterday about, you know, the Biden administration wants to take your red meat away <laughs> and <laughs> the amount that that was getting shared. It, it is which just is fake news. Right. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Right. Well, that other voice you hear is our, our friend David French, senior editor at The Dispatch, uh, writes in all sorts of different places. You can find him at the dot com. You and your wife have done some some really impressive reporting, really, in the last month, two months, three months about Canicut camps, which Aubrey and I were talking off air. Both uh, both of us are very familiar with people who've gone to Canicut and that sort of thing. Uh, could you give our people just the Reader's Digest version of, kind yeah. of the Canicut camp story and really why it's such a big deal? Yeah. So for people who don't know what Canicut camp is, it is a it's an enormous Christian camp, just yeah. enormous and has really had a disproportionate influence in what I would call the evangelical elite. Mm -hmm. Um, especially in the Southwest and in the, in the, you know, in the South. And it is, um, so it's about 25,000 students a year, a kids a year go through it. It's huge. And several years ago, one of their counselors, well, not a counselor, a director, a camp director was arrested, um, for child sex abuse and mm -hmm. convicted, sentenced to a couple of consecutive life terms and really nobody knew about it. There yeah. was very little news. You know, here the, here's a camp outside of Branson, Missouri. Um, big media didn't cover it. I even like the, a lot of the Christian media didn't cover it at all. It just sort of seemed in the, in the camp sort of story was we found out a bad egg. We found out about this bad person, um, turned him in. He was prosecuted. We've learned how to spot bad eggs in the future and or bad apples in the future. And we are now an industry leader in child protection. But 
the reality of what occurred, uh, I, the way that Nancy and I described it in our first article is the worst Christian sex abuse scandal you've never heard of. Mm. And this was a super predator on a scale that is just boggles the mind mm. who operated for a decade at least mm. in a major Christian camp. Mm. And there were red flags after red flags after red flags. And not only um, did the camp keep him employed, they promoted him as one of sort of the key faces of the camp. And and so how this came to us is some victim families who uh, all 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 of them, except for one, had agreed to sign an NDA or some form of confidential, mm. you know, either confidential settlement or a non-disparagement agreement. And they were one of those families reached out to Gretchen Carlson, the former Fox anchor yeah. who, who does a lot of work opposing these non-disclosure agreements that often silence victims of sex abuse. And Gretchen reached out to my wife, who she's known and who had been has been a victim of sex abuse in church as well when, when she was a child. And my wife started digging into the story months ago, pulled me into it in early this year. And we began to unpeel this onion and just found it, that it was very deeply disturbing mm. to see how this predator was able to operate in this vast ministry. I talked to the prosecutor in the case and he estimated his estimate is that the true number of this predator's victims could have numbered in the hundreds. Ugh. And the first and what's so sad is the first report of him being inappropriately nude with a camper or a child came in 1999. <gasps> And he was not arrested until 2009 mm. and reports came in of him being nude with kids in mm. 99 and 01 and 03 and oh. 03. They even did like this discipline plan where at the very opening, they asked him about things like the Catholic sex abuse scandal, showing that they were clearly worried that this guy was an abuser. But yeah. then at the same time, they were pushing him out there into people's homes where mm. he groomed kids in people's homes mm. And it's just, and then we came out today with a report my wife did that says that um, uh, when a parent, a Canuck parent learned of Newman's actions in 09, this was, but this had been, re remember, reported in 99, 2001, 2003, 2006, 2008. He was bragging about hot tub Bible studies in 09 uh, when it was reported. Uh, this, this witness, this person who's come forward on the record yeah, says that White um, really ref refused to appoint in any, any kind of independent investigation, asked mm. him not to go public, mm. asked him not to go to law enforcement, mm. uh, Joe White, the head of the camp. And so it was just, um, it, you know, and it's the kind of thing that a terrible thing occurred and there was never any real accountability uh, amongst the leadership in the camp, never any real transparency as to how this would happen. And what we were trying to do is just shine the light on a dark chapter. David, I am, man, I'm sitting here just moved emotionally. Thank you to you and your wife for finally bringing this story to the light. And I, what it's bringing to mind to me is Ravi Zacharias. Yeah. And you mentioned the abuses in the Catholic church. Like, I feel like what we are seeing is that there has been this, maybe not to this degree, hopefully, but this type of cover up in the church or in Christian organizations for years, that's finally being exposed. But, um, 
I don't even know the question I want to ask, but how as Christians are we meant to respond to this kind of thing? Yeah, this is a great question. I think that, um, I think for those who have eyes to see, when you put together a lot of these scandals, this should be viewed as the evangelical church's Catholic moment. Yeah. Now we don't see it that way because we're so, we're not, we don't have a hierarchy. So it's easy for you, for somebody to say, well, it's, you know, when you have a congregational structure and everything is fine in your church, you can say it's them, it's those people, it's not us. But I think for those who have eyes to see, when you add up like, the the staggering uh, the staggering uh, issue with at, with Ravi Zacharias the abuses we've seen uncovered at Liberty for example the largest Christian yeah. university in the world yeah. this Canacuck one of the largest camps in the whole United States of America I mean and you're seeing these things you know a, a couple of things I think come to mind one is you have to realize that for every one of these stories that's at some place famous there are many stories in places that yeah. are out of the way that nobody's ever going to hear about. Yeah. And one thing that we have found, and again, my wife is a, is a victim of sex abuse in church as well, is that time and time again, the people who were charged with exercising authority and responsibility failed. Yeah. They received complaints, they received complaints, and it would take courage to react the right way. And they just failed. They failed often because the person that, um, they're receiving the complaint about might've been seen as key to the ministry. You know, mm. who's more key to Ravi Zacharias international right. ministries than Ravi Zacharias. Who's right. more key to Liberty than its president. Right. You know, at Canacuck again, Canacuck people to this day justify turning a blind eye to some of the red flags mm -hmm. by saying that, well, you have to understand Pete Newman was get, doing so much good work and we we're getting so many good reports on him. Mm. Well, I don't care how many good reports you get on the guy. If you're also getting reports that he's nude with kids, right? you do something decisive. That's and, right. And so time and time again, and my wife has been going through a journey right now um, as she has been sort of unwinding what happened to her and who failed mm -hmm. in her circumstance. And yeah. who failed in her circumstance was the leadership of her church and the local police. And when those things occur, you know, we have victims who are left with no recourse no recourse. And, you know, my wife has a national platform so she can write about things and trigger investigations and change. But how many people don't have that? They've relied on people in positions of leadership. And so I think it is so important for Christian ministries right now to take stock of what's happening and put in place very specific, very effective policies that allow for people who a complain of abuse to be heard and for those complaints to be effectively investigated by independent investigators immediately, yeah, yeah. rather than re trusting that, you know, if one of the things that Ravi Zacharias, and I'm kind of going on and on here, but one of the things that the Ravi Zacharias story, and I, I wrote about that at length, you know, part of the accountability was he, he was surrounded by his own family members who yes, were, yes. and family members, the worst possible right. instrument right. of accountability. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, have strong accountability measures in place when there is an allegation of abuse, appoint an independent investigation, and then take decisive action in response to the report of an independent investigators. That's very basic stuff right there. Yeah, it's yeah. very basic. And then by all means, do not try to force victims of sex abuse into non-disclosure agreements. Mm. Do not do that to people. Yeah. yeah. 
David, we really appreciate your guys' reporting and talking about this because it's not easy, but it is uh, <laughs> it is so fundamentally important if the church is going to uh, be the church going forward. And so thank you for that. I know it's not an easy conversation, but we're grateful for you and your wife. We love having David on. Again, a couple different places you can find him at The Dispatch. Also at the French Press and on Twitter at David A. French. Easily one of my favorite Twitter follows uh, <laughs> at David A. French. We encourage you. David, we can't wait to have you on again sometime. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And if you follow me, you're going to get a lot of superhero content. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, uh, I'm in. I'm in. Done and done. <laughs> again, we're thrilled to have David with us. Coming up next, Aubrey and I, I'm going to make her discuss sports again oh, as, we, no. <laughs> as we talk about the concept of encouragement. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Uh, Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today on a hot and steamy Tuesday afternoon. Okay, Aubrey, I'm going to do something that's uh, that's not going to make you happy. You ready? Oh, no. Okay. We're going to, for the second time this hour, we're going to talk about sports. Okay, I but feel we're like this is use good training it. for me. You're teaching we're, me things. Okay. <laughs> Next hour, we'll just talk about uh, what what would it be? Marvel superheroes and uh, other things. That, that I'm glad I, you said that and you didn't say anything. You could have been really sexist there and you could have said something <laughs> like, you know, we'll talk about, I don't makeup, but instead you went Marvel. So thank you for that, Brian. I mean, I, I can that. make those jokes if you would like. I, I think it could get me in trouble, not only with our listeners, but with the uh, with my lovely wife that I live with here. So. <laughs> I, I like Carrie for that reason. <laughs> I think uh, I think I would have uh, I would be getting in trouble from many different fronts on that one. So, uh, all, right, all right, let's go, let's go, let me, sports. I'm ready. Let, let me tell you about uh, not just my favorite baseball team, which is the New York Mets, but but uh, probably my favorite player, the best player on the Mets. He is a pitcher by the name of Jacob Degrom, and so let me tell you his story a little bit. Okay, uh, and then we're going to again get pastoral with this a little bit. And I want to ask you a little bit about your background. Jacob Degrom is in my opinion, inarguably the best pitcher in all of baseball right now. So not just on the Mets. He is unbelievable right now. Unbelievably dominant. It's almost like uh, it's like he's pitching Little League right now. Wait, can I interrupt you to ask you a question? This is a real sports question. And I'm it ready. Will, it will connect. Good. Is he better than Nolan Ryan? It's a good question. I would say so. He is now because Nolan Ryan's like 70. Well, obviously not <laughs> Nolan Ryan now, Brian. I would say uh, some people disagree. See, you're giving good, good sports talk radio right there. Thank uh, you. I would say Nolan Ryan gets the edge for longevity. Okay. Uh, at his prime right now, DeGrom is trending, I would say, even better. He's okay. at historic levels right now. Okay. So, Our youngest son is named after Nolan Ryan. You don't oh, know that, but that's, that's a whole other awesome. conversation. Okay, you go. Get that's back to the point, awesome. Brian. Get that's back to the awesome. point. So DeGrom, completely dominant. And when that happens, there start to be articles written about him and his background and all this stuff. So here's where I want to tell you just an interesting story I read the other day. When he was in the minors, DeGrom didn't even pitch when he was in college he was a shortstop became oh. a pitcher uh when he was 23 years old still in single a ball he went up to one of his coaches who was a former mlb all-star by the name of frank viola and told him i think it's time for me to find something else to do hmm. because he just wasn't progressing as fast as he had hoped things weren't going well and frank viola sat him down and gave him great encouragement you've got the tools you can be good at this stick with this 
DeGrom did not then leave baseball, stayed in baseball, and is now, you know, six years later, seven years later, one of the best pitchers in all of baseball. So I read this through pastor's eyes and said, that is a sermon illustration. That is an open for the power of encouragement. People who come alongside you and just encourage you, no, I see this in you. You can do this. You can be good. Kind of like the Barnabas to to Paul, right? Yeah, And and the power of encouragement. Who were the people in your life, Audrey? Does anybody stick out to you who told you you can do this, whether it's pastorally or you're an author, whether it's like, no, I see this in you. Write that book in your heart when you were like, who's going to read a book I write? Yeah. Does somebody come to mind who Mm -hmm. just sat you down or told Mm -hmm. you you can do this and it kind of changed your trajectory? Yeah, I would say there were several people along the way. And even you just sharing that story, I'm like, oh, yeah, I have those people in my life. Uh, One I had when I was a uh, senior in high school, I had an English teacher who actually just kind of said, you're a good writer and you're a good Mm. speaker. You should maybe do that. And I just had never really, I mean, I always loved writing and creative writing, but I never really thought about that. And then in college, I had a a female professor of sociology who took me under her wing and kind of taught me more about writing. And then um, at my first job, when I was a junior high youth pastor, the senior pastor at our church heard me speak because every Sunday we would do, you know, like Sunday school with the kids, Mm -hmm, basically, mm -hmm, I guess mm -hmm. it was youth group. Um, And he said, you're a really gifted communicator. I want to put you in a pulpit on a Sunday morning, which could be controversial depending on your church background to have Mm -hmm. a woman um, in the pulpit on a Sunday morning. Now he did it under the authority of the elders and they were willing to empower me to do that. But those voices along the way, and as I've had more mentors, as I've gotten older, have really empowered me to um, do what I do now. I wouldn't have done it without them. And um, to be who I am, I think they've shaped my my character as well. What about you as an athlete? Did you have those as an athlete? I coaches? Was never an athlete. Oh, you oh. just love as a sports watcher. Did you have those? People? I am. I am your prototypical sports fan. Fan. You know? so, fan. Okay. You know what? Pastorally and some other spots. You know, there there come those times when you're a high schooler or in college where. You know, you don't know what you're good at and not mm-hmm. good at. And I remember there being people in our in our little church back in New Jersey who would like regularly. There are some men who regularly took me out to dinner. Even when I was at Wheaton, they'd come uh, on business through Chicago and always call me and take us out and Aww. whatever. And regularly say things like I remember my old youth pastor, like saying things like, hey, uh, you could do this. Like mm. you can speak. And they would let me get up and speak. And I would do terribly, you know, and they would right, of course. give feedback. But they'd be like, no, you can do this. That's cool. Uh, and, and I always remember being just really encouraged and then being just out of college, uh, again, being a youth pastor in this net, having people on staff or, or other pastors ahead of me just going, hey, we see this gift yeah, in you. Like you yeah. can do this. I remember one person I really trusted and, and admired saying, uh, if you're not leading a church in five to 10 years, I'm going to ask you what's wrong. And wow. I like, oh, okay. Wow. I, I don't see that. But this person who I greatly respect does. And cool. I, I think it just raises, I thought it was important to just say, hey, who's the, A, who's encouraging you out there, right? Like who's pushing mm-hmm. you along? Mm-hmm. But then uh, here's the more biting question. Who are you encouraging? Right, right. Like it's the old pay it forward thing, right? Yep. Like Aubrey, you probably have the opportunity to tell some yeah, young, aspiring, particularly female writers, like, no, you can do this yep. too. And yep. here's what you need to think about. And 
Uh, thought that was a powerful story. And it made you wrestle with sports again. I'm going to do that as much as I can. This is good for me. You're stretching me, Brian. I like it. Well, what's going to happen is I'm going to subtly help turn you into a Mets and Giants fan. And then your husband's going to be What's my husband going to do? He is not going to be okay with that. <laughs> He's not even going to know, wait, what just happened? So, <laughs> encouragement. It's such an important biblical principle uh, that, that I think we should all give some thought to. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about legacy. What's it look like to leave a legacy in light of what would have been the 100th birthday of John Stott Amazing. this week? We are going to talk about legacy. And then later on today, we're going to be joined uh, by Dallas Jenkins of The Chosen fame, of the producer uh, and the creator of The Chosen. Both those coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, what does it mean to leave a legacy? What we can learn from John Stott on what would have been his 100th birthday. Plus, we're joined by the creator and director of The Chosen, Dallas Jenkins. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for being with us today. I want to start uh, this hour by talking a little bit about legacy. Mm. And I got thinking about this because I saw a bunch of tweets and articles highlighting that today would have been John Stott's 100th birthday. That's so crazy. That's amazing. It is. And, and John Stott, if you don't know much about him, he, a prolific writer, uh, an Anglican mm-hmm. uh, and and. Just uh, he he helped mold many of today's theologians in his writings and other things. A lot of theology that you may and may not may, mm-hmm. may or, or may not agree with, right? Like most um, uh, most uh, famously, John Stott is like an annihilationist, and a lot of people right. have a problem with right. that. And right. and so we don't hold everybody up because they have the perfect theology or they have the perfect this. But what has been amazing? The Gospel Coalition ran an article today. Christianity Today ran an article today. Lots of tweets about the impact mm-hmm. of John Stott on one's life. Yeah. And I want to talk about legacy. Why do you think years after John Stott has died on what would have been his 100th birthday, there are still people reflecting upon the legacy that he left? So I have kind of an interesting sort of one of those seven degrees of separation from John Stott. And I think this is part of why his legacy is so impactful. So my husband's mentor was a Zambian man named Lawrence Tempway, who we actually went and lived with and worked with for a year in Zambia. He passed away from cancer uh, two or three years ago now. But his mentor was John Stott. Wow. And this is this, you know, I mean, this is a an influential Zambian pastor to me and Kevin, but like not to the rest of the world. You know what I mean? And yet John Stott poured into him. And I know he is one of many pastors and just Christians globally that John Stott influenced. Time Magazine ranked him among the most 100 influential people in 2005. And this is like a Anglican theologian, you know what I mean? And Time Magazine recognized him. But I think it's that he had that personal impact. Yeah. But also he was really committed to something that was unique at the time. Now, we don't think of it as unique now, but um, really committed to a preaching style that um, had its one foot really grounded in the, the world of the text, but the other foot really grounded in what was actually happening in the world around him. 
what people were actually struggling with, what the world was dealing with, and what the Bible has to say about that. He was really famous for building that bridge he called between two worlds. And we think of that as normal preaching now, but that was really radical at that time for him to change sort of the way preachers began to preach. Yeah. And and so it is interesting. Man, that's a great story. A Zambian pastor whose mentor was John Stott. Let me read what Russell Moore wrote about John Stott's impact. He wrote on his hundredth birthday, let's consider that Stott could have had a much bigger name. He could have been the Archbishop of Canterbury, maybe if he lumped a little more. He could have raised millions in direct mail warning that we should act now or we will lose everything if he had wanted to split a little more. But instead, he chose to be a disciple. Too rigid for those who want Christian to modify their liberalism and too soft for those who want Christian to modify their fundamentalism. He wanted to be a Christian and to modify all the modifiers whenever the modifiers describe something other than Jesus. Mm. He was willing to be forgotten. And that's why we remember him. He was willing to be dispensable. And that's why we miss him. Just powerful words from Russell Moore Mm -hmm. uh, on the impact of John Stott, the impact that he continues to have. And like you said, around the world, we Mm -hmm. want you to hear from the director of Langham Preaching in Africa. Uh, His name is Femi Adeleye, and he gives powerful words, testimony to globally the impact that John Stott has had. May I highlight three particular things Uncle John emphasized and taught us as students. The first is the importance of a Christian mind. It taught us that our minds matter and challenged us to develop a Christian worldview as we live out our faith and engage relevantly with God's world. Secondly, Uncle John taught us double listening. Listening in the word of God and listening to the voices of the modern world. Thirdly and not least, particularly for me at my age, Uncle John taught me the value of Triple H. After we had lunch and some conversation together at the IFS World Assembly, Uncle John said it was time for him to have his Triple H. I asked what that was, and he gently responded, horizontal half hour which he recommends for rest and refreshing to keep one going for the rest of any day. Hence, the care of our body is as important as that of the mind and heart in serving God's purpose in our generation. All right, Aubrey, that is just powerful stuff. None the uh, the Triple H. That's really good. I care love that. Bodies, yeah. Horizontal. The, what did he call it? The horizontal half hour. Half hour. The rest. Right, right. Yeah. But also that the mind matters. That's a lot of what people you'll hear about John Stott. And so he's just had a impact, a legacy around the world. Let me turn it this way, though, Aubrey. Um, how do we, you and I, other people, just people out there listening, how do we set our lives to leaving a legacy? How do we live lives that will uh, still make an impact mm. after we are gone? Yeah, the, the two things that come to mind are... Um, we need to finish strong. Oh, that's good. You know, I see so many Christians who just, it, life gets hard and life gets hard. I mean, I'm not denying that life gets hard, but, um, or things happen, mistakes are made and they walk away from their faith or they stop running their race. 
And I really think one of the most powerful lasting impacts we can have is simply by following Jesus until the end of our days. Like just don't quit. Finish strong, stay people that are faithful, stay people of integrity. And then the other thing is what Russell Moore just said, um, to live as though Jesus is the only priority and the main priority, right? And and to love people like Jesus did. Again, that um, clip we heard was from the director of Langham preaching in Africa. And I think those three things are so powerful, that double listening, the value of the Christian mind, that triple H, and then the global, the global aspect of our faith. John Slott had his hands in different places all over the globe. So I think that we can get beyond our little worlds and think about the global state of the church and global Christians and pour into them as well. What do you think, Brian? I think it's as we, I love that idea of finishing well. I hadn't thought about that. Like you leave a legacy when you end it well. That's it. That's really good. And I also think, we talk about this a lot, but having this some sort of eternal perspective that says, I'm going to build into other people and make an impact that is focused on eternity. And then when I'm gone, it's going to continue to resonate, right? Yeah. Like it's going to continue having an impact. Like when, uh, again, when, when we have some sort of focus on eternity and, and when we interact with other people on, on a, on an eternal level, things that matter. Uh, things that are going to resonate, well, then they're going to continue to resonate after we're gone. That's right. Uh, and, I, and I think that's so important. So we wanted you to hear that today. John Stott would have been 100 today. And man, it is the picture of a life that continues to resonate throughout eternity. Uh, just a, a life well lived. Well, coming up next, we're thrilled to be joined by Dallas Jenkins. Uh, Dallas is the creator He's the producer. He's the co-writer of The Chosen. We're going to talk to him about The Chosen season one. We're going to talk about season two, which is just the first three episodes have come out. We're thrilled to be joined next by Dallas Jenkins here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us here on a beautiful uh, and warm Tuesday afternoon. Thanks for spending some time with us. And uh, we are thrilled to welcome back to the show uh, an old friend, somebody who has been on ever since we started the show. Uh, he is the creator, director, and co-writer of The Chosen. Many of you, I'm sure, have seen chosen. If you haven't, you need to uh, rectify that and see it. It is the first multi-season series about the life of Christ and the most successful media crowdfund of all time. That is Dallas Jenkins. Dallas, how are you doing, friend? I'm good. I'm good. Glad to be on. Um, as I mentioned off the air, uh, I, uh, Ian seems to have been replaced by someone uh, I'll just go ahead and say better. Yeah, uh, yes, that would be accurate. You're right, Dallas. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, last time I was on, it was with you and Ian, and right. uh, you guys were you guys were involved. Uh, we were talking long before the chosen was cool. That's right. So <laughs> uh, it's been a little while since I've been on, but I'm thrilled to be back. With it you. has. I even told. Uh, I think I told Aubrey the story that one of my great memories of you is Ian was having neck problems, and I walked in, and you were giving him like a chiropractic move to uh, help him get there. So an it's old friend memory. of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. And he's he's never been better. Never so. been better. <laughs> never been better. Well, Dallas, right. as everyone knows now, over the last year or two, uh, the chosen has become such a I almost said a phenomenon in the Christian world. To be honest with you, it's just a cultural phenomenon right yeah, now, the chosen. And so I want to start uh, just kind of a, a really big level. How has your life changed 
from The Chosen. Not We're going to talk about The Chosen second season here in a little bit, but just how much momentum and popularity and success The Chosen has had. How has that been for you? Well, yeah, it's been quite a ride. I um, I think our lives have changed in so many ways. But what's interesting about it, and I, we've actually talked about this on your show before, which is mm-hmm. my life changed significantly before The Chosen Right before the chosen, and I think it's actually what what led to the chosen is my life changing because of failure. I mean, right mm-hmm. now the chosen is known as extremely successful, and which is which is wonderful. But my life changed far more by the failure that took place right before it, which was my movie, The Resurrection of Gavin Stone, which in 2017, early 2017, when it failed at the box office, um, my life was radically changed. Where I I I was broken and surrendered. And learned a lot of lessons from the Lord just in over the course of a couple of days hmm. that allowed me. And I believe that's, I, I think God was in many ways saying, okay, now you're ready for the chosen. Hmm. Um, and so when people ask me, I get this question a lot is how has the chosen changed you or what's it like to have this, this pro- project that's, that's, you know, having such impact. And I, I, and I mean this, I'm not trying to, def- to deflect the question. I really mean it, which is, it hasn't really changed a whole lot because mm. the big change happened before it. Um, I'm really consciously trying to not let the chosen change much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't even have to actually try that hard. God reminds me of it every single day because um, there are so many things that have happened with the chosen that are so far beyond what I'm capable of hmm. and so far beyond what I expected that um, it's a daily reminder that I'm, I'm not in control and that's a great place to be. So um, I, I, it's great that the chosen is having the impact that it's having uh, it's great that, that, you know, financially speaking, uh, the show is generating the kind of income that allows us to do more episodes and seasons, which is all I care about. I don't mm. care about personal wealth, uh, but the, the show now is generating because of uh, all people who pay it forward, people who buy merchandise, all that stuff um, has has given me a freedom now to focus solely on the show um, and, and making sure that we're just doing future episodes and seasons. But I mean this when I say it. Um, that, that came, that success, quote unquote, came after we made, made a decision that I didn't expect to work, which was we made the show free. Mm-hmm. When we made the show free back when the pandemic hit, um, we were just going to do it for a couple of weeks and just as kind of a goodwill gesture and to have be, more people see it during this difficult time and yeah. everyone was struggling. And the moment we did that, um, and we said, look, you don't have to pay for it. It's totally free. You don't have to buy it, anything. But if you want to, you can pay it forward, which allows other people to watch it for free and allows us to keep financing future episodes and seasons. And our income completely quadrupled. Wow. <laughs> and, and that was such a radical moment yeah. and such a, just such an indication of God's impossible math mm. that it was like humbling. It was like, yeah. wow, yeah, this is this shows you just how little of me needs to be in, needs to be in charge of this and how yeah. much more of God needs to be in charge of it. So it really hasn't changed a whole lot of my perspective. If anything, it's made me even more uh, humbled and, and surrendered. Mm. That's so awesome. Dallas, for our listeners, I actually want to play them one of my favorite moments from season one. This is actually an episode one when Jesus calls Mary by name, and then I'm going to have you respond to it after we listen to it. Great. How do you know my name? Thus says the Lord who created you, and he who formed you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. 
I have called you by name. Okay, so Dallas, I'm you know I'm watching the shows and everyone's talking about it, and I watch that scene at the very end, and I'm sitting on my couch weeping, like <laughs> Jesus just calling her by name was so powerful. What was that moment like for you, just as a producer and a writer, watching that happen? Well, it started back when we first were um, conceiving of the show, and when we were first, when I got together with my co-writers and we outlined season one, and we knew two things. One, that we were going to treat this like a normal show, mm -hmm. meaning that the episode one of every show is, a, it's a pilot episode. You don't know the characters. You don't know the setting. You're just kind of getting familiar with this new world. And that's how we wanted this show to be. Um, we were introducing you to people before they meet Jesus. Um, we weren't going Bible verse to Bible verse, miracle to miracle, like a lot of Jesus movies have done. Right. And we knew that that was going to be the best way to make moments like what you just played and moments from scripture that much more powerful when they were portrayed on screen. And so we needed to, to, to introduce what we called the before. This is the mm. before of these people before mm. Jesus. Came home. So we knew that that was going to be how we were going to do the show. And we were excited about it. We knew that it was going to make the show more powerful. However, we also knew that episode one, if it doesn't end with something really powerful and really impactful, then we're going to lose people because they're right. going to get impatient. They're going to be like, wait a second. Okay. I'm, I want to watch Jesus show. Where's Jesus? Where's all yeah. my, favorite, <laughs> my favorite Bible verses. Right. Um, so I'm like, we have to end with, with something that's really going to cause people to, to go, okay, I see where this show is going. I see that this show is to be trusted. I see that this is a show that's going to be about the impact of Jesus. So when we, when we designed episode one, it was all about how do we make the ending of episode one as powerful as possible? And the reason that I believe that that clip you just played has caused people to weep like it has is because of what took place beforehand. Mm. If someone just heard that clip for the very first time and just now on, on, on the show, a viewer, a listener right now who hasn't seen the show, they probably didn't have much of a reaction. Yeah, um, it's, it's powerful because we took the time to introduce you to uh, Mary Magdalene before she met Jesus and just mm. how horrible and oppressive her life was at the time because the bible tells us that she was you know oppressed and possessed by demons yeah and so that's what makes that moment moment stand out so when we were filming it um before we filmed it we knew separately jonathan who plays jesus and liz who plays mary and myself we all knew the weight of this moment mm -hmm. we knew that like the show was going to sink or swim based on us executing it and we just had to try to as best we could take off the pressure and just let jesus you know work through this this scene, but we were all crying even before we filmed it. <laughs> we're like, all right, we got to get, we got to get it together here and uh, get the scene done. And, but I didn't know how powerful it was going to be until the music came in and yeah. the editing came in and, yeah. and we finished it and we were like, and I'm like, yeah, this is transcendent. This is even better than, than, than what I'm capable of writing or directing. God, so powerful. If you have not seen The Chosen, you need to go to thechosen.tv. That's thechosen.tv. Uh, I'm sure you get this question a lot. So, uh, what is it like? What kind of pressure do you feel? Because you're you're giving people kind of a window uh, who may not read the Bible or watch other stuff. You're giving them a window into the life of Christ. You guys are kind of filling in some of the uh, the unknowns and the holes. It, help us understand the level of pressure you feel, if any, as you're kind of trying to portray Jesus to an audience. Well, I for sure feel pressure um, to get it right because. 95% of the show is, is not directly from scripture. Right. Um, yeah. I, mean, I, I try to tell people, not, not, I try, I do tell people, 
Um, our show is not the Bible. The Bible is the Bible. You're, yeah. and, and, and the people who are concerned, because I know there's listeners right now who are saying, uh, well, you're not supposed to add to the Bible or subtract from the Bible. Um, and I agree with that. Mm-hmm. And if you go check your Bible right now, you will see that since The Chosen has come out, nothing has been added to your Bible. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is still the same Bible. Um, and we say right before episode one, we have a we have a text that comes up and says, you know, we we've taken certain uh, locations and, and timelines and compressed them. Um, and we encourage you to read the Gospels. Um, we uh, we we when we add to the story in our minds, we're looking at this as this is a show about first century Galilee, the people in first century Galilee. And it's a show based on the life of Jesus and his followers mm-hmm. and his enemies. And scripture is our primary source of truth for it. But there's also historical uh, context and cultural mm-hmm. context. And anytime you hear a sermon that's based on a story from the Gospels, you always hear some of that context that's not from scripture. Right. And we don't say, wait a minute, don't say that. You're not allowed to say it because right. it's not from scripture. Yeah. Like we give you historical context, historical, uh, co- cultural context. And in our case, yes, a lot of artistic imagination. So the pressure that I feel is to make sure that we are um, portraying accurately the character and intentions of Jesus in the Gospels. Mm. And I never want to stray from that, even though when I'm showing a conversation that Jesus has with another character that's not from Scripture, uh, obviously, uh, I'm not claiming it's Scripture, but I want to get it right. I want to get the character and intentions right. So even if it's not factual, we want to make sure that it's plausible, both mm. spiritually and historically and humanly. I mean, we, we want to, when we're portraying the, the, the disciples um, or Jesus, we want to portray kind of an accurate human portrayal so that mm. it's, it feels authentic in that sense, that this is human behavior. And that's one of the things that I think is missing from nearly all of the Jesus movies that I watched growing up mm. was they didn't feel human. Yes. Um, including Jesus. Uh, yeah. I mean, they were usually British guys walking around with <laughs> blank stares. And I never was able to connect with any of the people that Jesus impacted, much yeah. less Jesus himself. And the number one thing that people say when they watch the show is this feels so human. It feels so authentic. Mm. I feel like I can connect with these people. Mm. And but uh, here's the here's the most important thing. Here's where the chosen would be wrong or where I think it would be dangerous is if viewers were taking it as gospel or replacing the gospel with it mm. or were learning things that were inaccurate or implausible or outside the character and intentions of Jesus. Mm-hmm. What we hear every day, and I mean literally every day by literally thousands of people on social media or via email or in our Facebook inbox from people who are saying, I'm reading my Bible more than ever because of the show. Wow. I love Jesus more than ever because of the show. I'm back to church more than ever because of the that's show. That's awesome. And that's where I would say to people who are concerned or skeptical is the proof is in the, is in the reactions right. there. Yeah. I would agree with your concern if people were saying, oh, good. Now, because of the chosen, I don't need to read the Bible anymore. <laughs> right, um, right. People, I'll just watch TV. Sometimes say, well, sometimes people will say that moment in the show People will think it's from the Bible. They'll be confused. Therefore, you're confusing people. Therefore, this show is dangerous. And the fact is, even when people see something and they think it might be from Scripture, they're going to Scripture to see. They're, That's awesome. they're going to their Bibles to, to get clarity on it. And two things sometimes happen. One is they go, yeah, okay, that moment from the show isn't from the Bible. I understand that. But it also happens sometimes that people go, wow, I didn't remember that was in the Bible. Mm. I didn't remember Jesus had female followers. Mm. I didn't remember that Mary Magdalene did have demons before she met mm-hmm. Jesus. I didn't remember, you know, uh, the names of all the, whatever it is, there are things that, that people are seeing more. And we also have, and this is where I'll wrap this up. We have a Bible study. We have two devotional books. After each episode, we do a round table with our biblical consultants and religious consultants who 
while they don't have veto power over the show, have really cool and interesting things to say. And we talk about the things that are in the show that aren't from the Bible. We talk about the the, the timelines that we compress and and talk about the Bible verses that are that that are more historically accurate than that moment that we had in the show. So it, we take it very very seriously. Yeah. And yes, it's a lot of pressure. But if I worried about how, what people thought I wouldn't do a Jesus show in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> so really true. dangerous so waters to walk on. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's so right. true. Okay, so Dallas, let's talk about the season two premiere. Over two and a half million people around the world have watched it, probably more than uh, that at that point. So you talked a little bit about this, but what has it been like hearing from people? How has the show encouraged them or transformed them or just touched them? Yeah, and I th- uh, it's a lot more than two and a half million uh, have watched so far season two, which is really cool because I think you're just maybe looking at YouTube, but on 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 the app, which we'll talk about in just a second. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we're, we've got it out on multiple places, which uh, between the app and YouTube. Awesome. Um, it's been it's been really cool to watch and and see the reactions. Uh, yeah, the the most common thing is people just saying, you know, for we've got viewers from every perspective. So we've got from atheists to like hardcore fundamentalists mm. and uh, and everything in between. And the thing that is the most common is, and this is what my goal is, and this is true of myself as well, is I want the viewer to see Jesus through the eyes of those who actually met him and then therefore be changed and impacted in the same way that these people were. And so if you come away from this show, whether you're an atheist or a hardcore you know, evangelical or pastor or whatever, I'm hoping that you know Jesus a little bit better than you did before you watched it, mm-hmm. or at least have a desire to know him better. Um, I don't think the show is the end all be all by any means. And I don't think that the show, because I, as I said, the show is not gospel. Yeah. The gospels are the best way to know Jesus more. But I, even as I'm making the show, uh, will be looking through the gospels, looking for a certain piece that I want to put in the show. And I see things all the time. And I was a Bible major in college. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I went to Christian school my entire life and I'll go, wow, I didn't remember that. Yeah. Or, wow. That's, I'm seeing that in a new light or we, the, one of the great lines we heard about the show was someone said, um, I feel like I'm uh, now the scripture is in color where before for me, it was in black and white. Mm. Now I don't believe that's true of everybody. I believe you can read the scriptures and have them be in color. Sure. Yeah. Have a transformative experience just by reading scriptures alone. Yeah. You, that can happen. But for some people um, it doesn't happen. Or for some people they went to a church that colored uh, no pun intended their view of scripture mm. um, or uh, people who don't read as well. And there are some people who can't even read. I mean, we've got the, the mm. because the app is free and easy to access. The app is available in 180 countries and it's been translated in over 50 languages. And there are some people who can't even read. So for them, the show has provided them an in into their teaching, like the teaching that they're getting from whatever church that they're part of or whatever missionary that they're encountering. Yeah. And uh, we've also got Bible studies and devotional books and all those things to, to get people deeper into the scriptures. We take this very seriously. And so uh, we want to make sure that those who are benefiting from the scriptures uh, and are benefiting from the show, mm-hmm. uh, that we're at least leading them in the right direction, even though this isn't the end game and isn't the end all be all for, for their relationship with the Bible. Yeah, it's really good. Hey, Dallas, as we close right. up, uh, two questions for you. First of all, where does, I haven't watched it yet, and I won't take me as long as it did last time when you used to come on, and I kept telling you I'm going to watch it, it's coming. Uh, but where does <laughs> The Chosen Two end, just so people kind of get an idea in the story, because then I'm sure there's a Chosen Three, and we'll talk about that another time. But where does it end? And then most importantly, give everybody all the information they need to know about how to access the shows and how to watch this great show. Great. So season one ended um, with Jesus and his current band of followers, which is not the complete group yet. They're leaving their hometown and going out into Samaria 
and into other parts mm-hmm. where there, where the ministry is now going public. Jesus has announced himself as the Messiah for the first time publicly to this woman at the well, and now they are, that's where season one ends. Season two picks up where that left off, which is now that Jesus is having an impact in Samaria. We know from Scripture that he changed a bunch of lives in this region of the country where people were actually hostile to Jews and where Jews were hostile to them. And so you start to see in season two, and the first three episodes are out now. Uh, we're not, not The entire season isn't out yet. Mm-hmm. The first three episodes are. And you're seeing now what happens when you follow Jesus. Uh, it sounds great, and it's all fun and games when you first meet the Messiah. But then the following part can get tricky. It's not easy as a human being to follow the Messiah, and you experience uh, opposition, and you have even tension within your own ranks. And what what happens when that when that takes place? Do you do you fold and go home, or do you push through, or do you argue? What so what does that look like? And I think mm. that's what we start to really explore in season two. Uh, so season two, uh, there's five more episodes left. They're going to be coming out over the next few weeks and months. Uh, actually, about the next month and a half or so will be mm. the rest of the episodes. Our release strategy is that we release them as soon as they're done. So we don't have a TV studio or streaming service. Wow. That's writing our big check. That's you know telling us when exactly to release them. We wow. release them as soon as they're done. So that caused us to release uh, episodes two and three at one time the other day, like last week, and we just did kind of did this surprise for everybody. We're like, all right, that's awesome. just enjoyed two. Here's episode three. That's surprise. Awesome. That's awesome. Um, so that brings me to where how you watch it. Um, we have our own app. So you just go to wherever you get your apps. You look up the chosen on the App Store or Google Play. We're very easy to find. Uh, we download within you know 30 seconds, and it's totally free, totally easy. And if you say, well, I don't want to watch a show on my phone, I get that. So you can actually connect it directly to your streaming device, Roku, Apple TV, Fire Stick, Chromecast, whatever. You can connect it directly to your streaming device. You don't need a subscription. You don't need to sign up for anything. You don't need to give your email address. You don't need to pay a dime. It's all totally free. So you can cool. be watching all of the chosen within two or three minutes of downloading the, the app. That's awesome. And I can't encourage people enough to go out and watch. If you have not seen season one, I cannot give a higher recommendation. Please go do so and then start in on season two. Again, Dallas Jenkins, creator, director, and co-writer of The Chosen. Go to thechosen.tv. Get the app as well. Dallas, it's really fun to reconnect. Thanks for taking the time, friend. Yeah, thanks, thanks for doing for this. Thanks for being with us today. Absolutely. Let's do it again at least one more time before I move to Texas here. Because right now <laughs> it's easy to talk to you from Elgin, but uh, I want to do it one, at least one more time before I And at least one more time right. in the studio when things are still more normal. We'll, we'll make that happen again. Dallas, we're thrilled to have you with us. And coming up next, we're going to close the show with some encouragement. We're going to try to encourage you, especially if you're feeling burnt out. You're listening to The Common Good. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. We're really grateful that you've joined us today, whether it's just been for a short amount of time or all two hours. We never take it for granted, the, the, the time that you give us, and we really do love our audience. One of the things we like to do on this show, as we close out the show, we like to leave you with a smile on your face, maybe with some good news, just some heartwarming stories, or we like to give you just some challenge and some inspiration. And that's what we want to do as we close out the show today, because, you know, many Christians feeling burnt out right now. And so we want to encourage you about seeking the presence of God rather than performance. And man, this is such a difficult but important concept. And there was a great article of Christianity Today that we'll touch on here. But uh, Aubrey, just this idea of seeking the presence of Mm. God rather than a performance, that is Oh, man, even saying that sounds really deep and kind Ugh. of like such an important thing. Just right. What are your thoughts as we even use that phrase? 
I, you know, I'm just thinking about this over, over the weekend, we were at my sister's wedding. And as my, my, my dad is such a loving father and he's so proud of his kids. And when he would introduce me, he would say, you know, this is my daughter, Aubrey. She's doing X, Y, Z. She's an author. She's got a new radio show. Mm. She, you know, and he's listing all of my accomplishments because he's very, very proud of me. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what dads do. You know, that's, that's right. a good thing. So I don't want to say anything negative about that. But what I do want to say is something about it kind of like tweaked me a little bit because I realized how much I sort of like it, the sort of sinful part of me likes that my dad could say, oh, Aubrey has this check, this yeah. check, this check, this check. And I realized I have to be really careful that my um, need to perform mm. whatever that looks like or my need to achieve or my need to be hustling never becomes greater than my need to simply be with Jesus mm. and allow him to shape me into Christ likeness. And I need to make sure that my being, my doing is never separate from my being. You know what I mean? Like yeah. my, my doing for God needs to come out of my being with him. And so mm. I love this article that Ike Miller wrote. He's actually the husband of a friend of mine, Shannon Hode Miller. And um, he talks about how we need to prioritize intimacy over efficiency, which that's mm. really hard for Americans. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. He talks about how we need to prioritize presence over performance. Um, rather than always asking, am I doing a good job? One of the things is like, God, have I actually just been present with you? And then um, prioritizing imitating Jesus over impressing others. I think that's a really hard one. What do you think about that? Brian? I think that number three one is the difficult one. Well, they're yeah. all difficult. But yeah. number three, prioritizing imitating Jesus over impressing others. I've, I said this to our church, actually, in my sermon this week, and I've said it on the show here. I've said it many different places that I'm a card-carrying people pleaser. Like, I, mm. want, I want people to be impressed by me, to like me, to affirm me, to... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, to subscribe, rate, review to the podcast, but only with good reviews, right? <laughs> right, like, right, that right, right. like I, I said this to our church the other day, like I genuinely don't understand people who are like, I don't care what other people think about me. Like yeah. I literally think they're lying. Because like that I can't just, actually, you can't actually function. That I can't, way. I cannot even yeah. like just imagine living in that way. And so this idea of, you know, use your, your Christian phraseology, whatever it is, you know, like this living for the audience of one mm. or this desiring to be like Jesus rather mm. than impress other people. I struggle with that. Yeah. And as a pastor, when you've got a, um, when you've got a stage, whether it's, you know, you're in a church of 100 or 10,000, it's still a stage. Yeah. And uh, and that could be really intoxicating and dangerous at times. Mm -hmm. And you just start to lose your way a little bit as to what's actually important. Ian, on the show, one of the phrases he used to say a lot that I picked up on uh, was that, that you're a human being, not a human doing. Oh, that's good. Uh, and, and I can struggle with that. I think that's why it stuck with me, because that can be hard. And so... Uh, so, Aubrey, what would you say to people who are like, OK, I get it, but I don't even know what she means when she says to be with Jesus. Mm. Uh, what does that even look like in your life? And what yeah. are steps people can take out there to kind of prioritizing what you're talking about there? Yeah, I, I, two things come to mind. I'll tell you about a, a spiritual practice that I started. Um, honestly, on January 1st, it was like a New Year's Eve 
our New Year's practice for me. Anytime I just note in myself, oh, I'm I'm striving for someone else's approval, or oh, I'm I'm posting because I want uh, an uptick in follows, mm-hmm. or I, if I just sort of note that in myself that I'm striving towards uh, attention or accolade or whatever, whatever language you want to use for that. Then I'll just, I, I used to really beat myself up over that. Like, Aubrey, why are you still doing that? That's not the way of Jesus. That's not humble. That's prideful. And instead I've just started going, Oh Lord, <laughs> here I am again in my frailty and my mm. humanity. And I want this thing, God, that is just not good it, here. I'm going to give it to you, Jesus. And I'm going to trust that you take care of it. And I will literally physically like act like I'm handing it over, surrendering mm. it to Jesus. And I'll just say, Hey, Thank you for this. This reminds me that you are God and I am definitely not, but sometimes I want to be. Would you transform me? And I just try to ask that God's gentleness and compassion and grace would transform me again and again and again so that I would walk the way that Jesus wants me to instead of the way that my sin wants to. So I think we can't beat ourselves up for it. We have to just allow God to speak grace over us. And then I do think the other thing is we were made to do. I mean, in the Garden of Eden, mm. we were given a, an identity and a purpose. And so what it's screwed up when we flip it, right? Or when we get one yeah. sort of out of hand over the other. And so I think that's okay, too, that we find purpose in our work. We find uh, meaning in what God has called us to do. But again, we just have to keep submitting it to the Lordship of Jesus Christ so that he's glorified instead of us. Yeah, I think that's a well, a good way to put it, that it's like a, it's a priority level thing, right? There like you go. It's not, hey, we're just going to sit and do nothing and just, you know, all become, you know, mystics and monks or whatever else yeah. it might be. But, uh, but so many of us get all of our validation, not just from what we do, but what other people say about us. And yeah. that, that it becomes our, our formative for us. And that's a real dangerous way to live. And and we're given this invitation in Scripture uh, to, again, like a book you have coming out, to know who God says we are. That's right. Uh, and to live in light of that. Let me just, uh, we'll close the show out, but let me just read what Ike Miller, how he closed this article, because I think it's a great way to close the show. He says, participation in Christ is to live in the same trajectory as Christ did in the incarnation, downward to transform our world. In this pursuit to be nothing, we leave space for God to be all. The greatest freedom, he's writing the pastor, so he says the greatest freedom in ministry, but I would just say in life, Mm -hmm. is found when we empty ourselves of all we think we should be so that he can fill us with, with what he wants us to be. That's just a... So That's good. a powerful way to end. And I thought a good way uh, to end. All right, Aubrey, uh, what is uh, the plan in the Samson house tonight? I always like to know what you guys are doing. Did you have your cheeseburger last night, by the uh, way? I had the cheeseburger last night. Yes. So that was really exciting. Tonight, I'm actually going to I'm going to mix it up use some of the leftovers and make some type of cheeseburger casserole. I don't know what's going <laughs> to nice. happen. I will let you know. Nice. What's happening in the From House tonight? It is uh, it is elder meeting night, so I will be out, nice. out in the other job and nice. then, uh, doing that. So we hope that you have a great night. It is beautiful out. Hope you get a chance to enjoy it. Join us again tomorrow from 4 until 6. For Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life.